that was actually some really interesting data. We looked at fawns, does, year and a half old males, two and a half to three and a half old males, and males that were four and a half years or older. Fawns were doing scrape interactions during the daylight about 65% of the time. But then when you get up to those four and a half and older males, they're only at the scrape during the daylight, 16% of their scrape interactions. They're really dominating those sites after dark. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman. And with the rut quickly approaching for many of us across the Whitetails range, I thought this would be a great time to discuss scrapes. So we're going to be talking with Miranda Huang, who's a research associate at Mississippi State University. Now, Miranda did an in-depth study on scrapes on a 10,000 acre property in Tennessee, and she gained a lot of really cool insight into their use, including you know when bucks use scrapes, how many scrapes bucks use. You know, how far will bucks travel to check scrapes and and how often bucks return to scrapes and and just a whole lot more. So I know you guys are going to really enjoy that discussion. Uh, Before we get started, though, this episode is brought to you by our longtime NDA sponsor, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's. The work we do at the National Deer Association wouldn't be possible without support from partners like Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's and their customers throughout North America. A grant from the Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's Outdoor Fund is supporting the NDA's national initiative called Improving Access, Habitat, and Deer Hunting on Public Lands, with the goal of improving 1 million acres of federal and state-controlled lands by 2026. Uh, This grant is directly accelerating work in this initiative to address forest vigor and access issues in six states, In the end, this will address declines in deer hunter numbers, habitat quality, and hunter access, helping to improve wildlife conservation for generations to come. And don't forget, we've kicked off the Gear for Deer sweepstakes that features just a pile of prizes from our friends at Quiet Cat, Performance Outdoors, First Light, and Tethered, including a a premium Illinois November rut hunt for 2024, Uh, either gun or bow, it's your choice. Uh, It includes the new Quiet Cat e-bike that comes in First Light's Spectre Camo, uh, over $1,500 in First Light gift cards, and a few saddle hunting setups from our friends at Tethered. Um, All these prizes were generously donated by those great companies, so every bit of the money raised will go directly to NDA's mission to ensure the future of white-tailed deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. And man, I would love to win that prize package myself. I could definitely use an e-bike, and and hey, who couldn't use a a rut hunt in Illinois? But unfortunately, I'm not eligible. But you guys are, so hit the pause button on this episode and head over to DeerAssociation.com slash gear for deer to get your chances today. And with that, let's jump on the phone with Miranda to talk all about whitetail scrapes. Well, hey, Miranda, welcome to the Deer Season 365 podcast. Uh, before we we dive into the the fascinating world of of whitetail scrapes, I always like to start things out by just getting a little background on our guest. So, 
can you tell us a little bit about yourself and and maybe what led you down this path to researching whitetail deer? Sure. So uh, I'm a disease ecologist. I'm working with the Mississippi State University Deer Lab right now. And what got me into this field is, you know, I've always liked animals. I've always been interested in working with wildlife. And uh, I actually, yeah, I came in from the disease angle. White-tailed deer are such an interesting animal to study <laughs> right now, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. From the disease angle with chronic wasting disease and several other things going on. So that's kind of my basic background. I got my master's degree from Mississippi State University in the same lab, the deer lab. I actually did my undergrad at this really small school out in Washington State called Whitman College and just they didn't even have a wildlife program. So I was just doing <laughs> biology. Yeah. Yeah. Now, where are you originally from? I grew up in Indiana. That's where kind of I'm originally from. OK. So how did the whole this whole scrape project come about? What was uh, how did how did that the idea for that, I guess, get get born? Well, as much as I would love to take credit for the idea of that, uh, Dr. Damaris and Bronson Strickland, who are the co-directors of the Deer Lab, came up with it. Uh, They got the project kind of in place and then hired me to run it. And the concept is kind of looking at how scrapes might interact uh, with chronic wasting disease. What is the interplay between this like weird breeding behavior that white-tailed deer are doing and disease, you know, is it potentially spreading the disease? Is it something that we could use to better understand the disease? And just what are really the dynamics going on when deer are coming to scrapes and doing these specific scraping behaviors? Yeah. And and I guess, how did you kind of give us an idea of how, how you approached this, how you, how you laid this project out? Um, what what exactly, uh, how did you monitor these scrapes and, and just kind of give us an idea of, of that side of it, I guess? Sure. So that's, I mean, that's one of the really cool parts of this research and a good example of how technology has allowed us to understand animal behavior even more. So a lot of scrape research was done in like the 70s and 80s, and it required people to just follow deer around <laughs> to see what they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> which is a great job. I mean, we'd all love to do that all day, uh, but it really limits the kind of data you're getting. Now we have, you know, trail cameras. So what we did is we set up a hundred trail cameras across a large property and we ran them for breeding season. So we put them up towards the end of September, ran them all the way through January and then had, you know, images 24 seven from a hundred scrapes over that time period that let us really keep an eye on what deer were doing and how that changed over the course of rut. Okay. And I guess, how did you initially, well, first, first of all, how, how big of an area are we talking about? We worked on just over 10,000 acres. Okay. And, and how did you initially, I guess, locate and, and, keep up with these scrapes in the in the study area so this is an active hunting area it has a hunting club on site so there were there's some existing knowledge about where scrapes are you can always rely on that from deer hunters that they know their land so we had some help with that just getting places where scrapes have been in the past because as i'm sure you know uh scrapes will often reappear in the same spot year after year when they're big community type scrapes And then it was just 
walk in the areas that we know scrapes tend to be. So past research has shown that scrapes are where deer are, right? And they also need trees. So places like uh, where the forest meets a food plot or an ag field is often a good place for a scrape or along ridgelines because deer like those higher paths to walk. So we just, after that, it was just a matter of walking in those areas and trying to find them. Okay. So was the hundred, was that just a, a number you went in with that? That's how many you wanted to monitor or is that just how many you ended up finding through the course of, you know, walking the property and, and stuff or what was that number? A hundred was, yeah, just the number we'd picked ahead of time. Cause it, seems like a good number. We actually ended up monitoring 107 um, because we wanted 100 active scrapes at all times. And some of the scrapes went dead during the course of the study. So we had to move the cameras to new scrapes. Okay, gotcha. And were they kind of, I guess, spread out across this this 10,000 acres? Did, did you have it like in in grids or how did you decide, I guess, where, where to pick these 100? It would have been nice if it had been in pretty grids, but yeah, scrapes don't just, they didn't, weren't cooperating quite that well for us. No, uh, no. <laughs> uh, we did spread them out as much as we could. We made sure to try and avoid like scrape lines. We didn't want an area where, you know, deer were just going bam, 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 visiting these same three scrapes that we're monitoring. We usually picked the best one in that case. Okay. Gotcha. And I, I guess you know, anecdotally, and you, and you mentioned some of it there as far as field edges and stuff, but did you find any commonality in, in these scrape locations as far as habitat or terrain or, you know, maybe what kind of tree they preferred for a licking branch or anything like that that was kind of common across a, a majority of these scrapes? You know, there has been some studies that have pointed out exactly what species of tree are preferred on their study sites. It's not something we looked at. But it and to be fair, I'm not very good with plants. So to my untrained eye, there didn't seem to be any terribly strong preference. I can say for sure they were using both pines and hardwoods in terms of trees. But then, yeah, in terms of habitat, really just and this is actually interesting. No, in terms of habitat. So I mentioned field edges, but it was specifically the field edges that deer were using. So this property also had some cotton planted on it. And you weren't very likely to find scrapes at the edge of cotton fields, which makes sense because deer aren't attracted to that at all. But anything with food, you know, if they were growing soybeans or had a food plot planted with clover, that would be more likely to have a scrape along the edge of it. Yeah, yep, yep, definitely, definitely makes sense. You know, they're all, if they're already there, yeah, that would that would be a, a key place for them to 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 put out a scrape. So exactly. And, once you once you found these scrapes, the hundred scrapes, is do you just put you know one one camera per scrape? Is that that's what we did? You, okay, and then random. You said from the end of September through January. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So peak breeding in our research area was in early December. So we ran them for about a month after that, and there was still some scraping activity, but it definitely was petering out. First, once rut really got going and deer were spending less time visiting scrapes more time, you know, tending does and such. But then, yeah, yeah as rutting wrapped up, there wasn't much reason to scrape either. Okay. And was this just a, did you just do this for one year or was this a, a multi-year study? 
It was just one year, but we will be going back to that study site and a couple of new ones this year to see what else we can learn. Okay, cool. Well, let's let's kind of you've kind of laid out there how the uh, how the study was set up. Let's let's dive into some uh, observations and, and some results. And I guess now you said some of these were like historical scrapes that that the hunters had told you about. That's right. So okay. So when, I guess, how how quickly did you start seeing deer use these scrapes? You know, once you once you had the cameras set up and stuff, or I, I, I'm assuming in some cases they were already being used. But was there, I mean, I guess, kind of a, a time frame there when you really started seeing usage initially pick up? Totally. So yes, all of the scrapes were already in use by the time we put the cameras down, just because that's the only way we could know for sure that we were going to get deer visiting the sites and that we'd get the sites exactly right. Unless you're, you know, out in the woods every year and comfortable with it, it's hard to know exactly which tree and which branch of the tree the scrape right. is going to form on. So all of the scrapes were in use when we started and we started picking up scrapes in the end of September, last week or so of September. But it wasn't really until the first week of November that Scrapes started hitting the ground hard and we were finding a lot of activity happening. So again, for us, that was about four weeks out from peak scraping. And some past studies have said two to three weeks is usually peak. So peak, uh, peak breeding, peak, two to three weeks from peak breeding is generally okay, is the yeah. conventional wisdom of when scraping is going to peak. OK, so ours was a little so, bit earlier. Gotcha. And then how long? I mean. On I guess on average, how long did they continue to use them even after, you know, beyond beyond peak? We had several scrapes that were still active um, late January when we picked them up. So going on six weeks after peak breeding, there was still some activity going on. OK. And what, I mean, was it a, a pretty strong, I guess, bell curve as far as their use? Did it really ramp up until that that four weeks prior to peak breeding and then drop off sh- you know, pretty sharply after that? It or was did. it more gradual? Okay. Yeah, it was really only one or two weeks where where scraping was really peaking. And then, yeah, it went right down as deer started actually getting to the breeding part of breeding season. Okay, interesting. And then I know, you know, when, you, when you're talking scrapes, one of the first questions that, that a lot of deer hunters are, that's going to come to mind is, you know, what, how much of this was done nighttime versus daytime. Yeah. So we we looked at that. We looked at um we looked at that. We looked at how much scraping was happening in that 30 minutes until sunset that hunting was permitted in Tennessee versus um the night until sunrise happened. And for our population, scrape interactions were only occurring during the day about a third of the time, uh 33% of interactions occurred during the day versus 67 when hunting was not permitted. Okay. And and I think y'all even looked at that by like age class. Did that differ depending on the kind of the estimated age of the buck? We did. Yeah. That was actually some really interesting data. We looked at fawns, does, year and a half old males, two and a half to three and a half old males and males that were four and a half years or older. And as you get older, you're spending less daylight time at the scrape. 
So phones were at the scrape. Phones were doing scrape interactions during the daylight about 65% of the time. But then when you get up to those four and a half and older males, they're only at the scrape during the daylight, 16% of their scrape interactions. They're really dominating those sites after dark. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, it's definitely interesting and, and definitely something for, for hunters to, to take note of. Doesn't, doesn't mean you couldn't, uh, couldn't get lucky and, and catch a, a mature buck on a scrape during daylight, but the odds definitely are not in your favor, it doesn't sound like. No. <laughs> and how, I'm curious how often, and I don't know if it's something you like noted, but I, and just in general, uh, how often do these deer use, you know, just the, the licking branch versus actually, you know, urinating in the scrape? They used the licking branch a lot more than they were actually urinating in the scrape. Urinating was one of the least common behaviors we saw at scrapes. I mean, it obviously, it happened plenty, but of the array of behaviors they could be doing at scrapes, licking branching happened most of the time that they were at a scrape, whereas urination was more rare. Okay. Yeah, I know just, just anecdotally, you know, I've, I've created mock scrapes, mm-hmm. I mean, right in the, in the middle of summer and put a camera on them and, and had deer immediately, you know, use the licking branch and, and get a lot of, a lot of photos that way. But yeah, it doesn't seem like, you know, they, they urinate in it much till actual, you know, closer to actual breeding time. But Yeah. So I guess looking at, there, there's kind of two ways to discuss the data from from an individual buck perspective and, and from an individual scrape perspective. And so I wanted to start out, I guess, looking with the, the at an individual buck perspective. So on, on average, I guess, how many different scrapes would an individual buck use in, in your study? I mean, how many, how many of these 100 scrapes did, did you often find like a, a single buck? Yeah, well, I guess, first of all, did you try to differentiate the individual bucks using that you were capturing pictures of? I guess that's the first question. Yeah, we did. So okay. we had these huge PowerPoint files where we were keeping track of every single buck that was visiting the scrapes. And I mentioned, yeah, it was 100 scrapes over 10,000 acres, and we detected 218 unique bucks. Uh, over the course of the four months visiting these scrape sites. And yes, we then, because we individually identified the bucks, we were able to kind of track their behavior over the scrapes. And we found that they visited an average of six different scrape sites out of our hundred and a max of 23 of those sites. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And that's only the hundred we were monitoring. We, there's a past study that found that there was, they looked over a set area. They checked it, I think, weekly for scrapes over the course of the breeding season so that they could say that there were about 34 scrapes per square mile. They were able to like say how many scrapes were on that parcel of land. And if we used that as an estimate for how many scrapes would have been on our study site, we would have been monitoring less than 3% of them. So. So with that in mind, you know, that's why I clarify so much that it was six of the hundred we monitored because it's certainly much more than that, that the deer were actually visiting. Right, right. Yeah, but that, wow, that is amazing that that one one buck visited 23% of the scrapes over 10,000, a 10,000 acre area. Yeah. So what what was, I guess, the greatest distance between 
some of these scrapes that you've seen an individual buck use? On like a as the crow flies distance, there were some bucks that were going. Let's see, I did it in kilometers, four to five miles as the crow flies uh, were some of the greatest distances we saw bucks traveling between scrapes. Wow, yeah, that's 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 amazing. Yeah. So, and then I guess the the next question I would have is how frequently would you see some of these individual bucks visit these scrapes? That's like, a, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, like, I guess the 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 same scrape. How how frequently might a, you see a buck, you know, visit revisit the same scrapes? Yeah, that's another good point for hunters. So we looked at all of the combinations of scrapes and bucks. You know, a hundred scrapes and two hundred eighteen bucks, and almost all of those pairs were single visits. Bucks were generally only visiting our scrapes once. We did have one scrape that returned, one buck, excuse me, that returned to the same scrape 11 times, but he was by far the most revisiting. It was, if you're looking, if you see a buck at a scrape, our data suggests that you probably won't see him at that same scrape again. Hmm. Yeah, that kind of goes against a lot of what, I guess, what I thought growing up, you know, re- from popular hunting media and stuff, you know, learning about the scrape usage, you think, you know, that, that buck's con- coming back and, and constantly revisiting that scrape to see if there's been a doe through there or whatever. So um, that's interesting that, that they only, most of them only visited a scrape one time. Yeah. The, I'm, I'm curious, and, and you might not know this, but that, that buck that visited the same scrape 11 times, um, was he... Did he not visit as many? I guess I, I'm just wondering if he like that was just kind of his core area. If you did you see him on, you know, so, a lot of the other scrapes or did was he, he did he seem to concentrate in that one area? That is a really good question. And I'm going to have to look into that now <laughs> okay. because I haven't. But no, that's yeah. OK. I, I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there, but it just that's what popped into my mind. If he's visiting that one scrape that many times, I wonder if he was just kind of a homebody where he wasn't wasn't hitting those those other ones but yeah i will have to look into that and then i guess was there well they weren't revisiting a lot of scrapes but i guess when they were was there any consistency to timing i mean would they they seem to hit any certain scrapes like you know at a, a similar time nightly or or did it just seem to be pretty random as far as when they would would hit these scrapes we haven't been able to find a pattern yet Uh, I've made videos for a few deer of just their movement between scrapes to watch how they pop up across the landscape. And with and that's the thing about scrapes, right? It's only one behavior they're doing out of their entire lives. So when you zoom in like you have on our data on just this one thing, it's hard to know like why they're behaving in this specific way. So we haven't yeah, we haven't been able to find any patterns yet. But we're we're hoping to be able to tease some of that out. We're gonna pair our camera traps at scrapes with some collar data and really get a better picture of what deer are doing during the breeding season. And hopefully, yeah. we'll find some of those patterns. Yeah, yeah, I, that's funny. That was actually my next question that popped in my head was I, I was wondering if you were gonna put any collars on these deer to to look at that to to pair it with this data. So that that would definitely uh, yeah be interesting to see. Yeah. Yeah, we're excited about it. So you, you talked about, or I asked you about, you know, the I guess the maximum distance you've seen a buck travel from from one scrape to another across the property. But 
what about just as far as the average? Do you see an average of how far these bucks would travel um, checking these various scrapes? Yeah, so we did calculate the average distances traveled over the course of the whole four month period. And we actually have it broken down again by age class because okay, conventional great. wisdom with scraping says that bucks, uh, older bucks are more dominant. So we wanted to look at this kind of pattern. So for our year and a half old bucks, we found an average of about 14 miles traveled between scrapes. For two and a half to three and a half year olds, it was about 10 and a half. And then for four and a half and older bucks, we found an average of eight miles. So it's getting progressively smaller as we're getting older. But okay. I, I do want to note that they are not statistically different. And I think that's because there's so much individual personality built in here, too. Just because one, just because the average is eight miles doesn't mean there's not one buck that's only staying within a mile radius. And we have one buck that went as far, one four and a half year old that went as much as 30 miles between all of these scrapes. So it's just hard with all of those individual differences to really classify something as specific to an age class. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, that's one thing I've noticed, you know, talking to a lot of different, you know, researchers about all different aspects of, of whitetail deer is, you know, we often talk about and report these averages, but there's often, if you look at it, like you said, there a, a wide range, um, you know, that that's just based on, you know, individual individuality of, of these deer. You know, we've looked at, talked to people about, you know, home range size and, mm. and, you know, traveling during the rut and all, all kinds of different, you know, aspects of deer behavior. And that, that seems to be a common theme, you know, <laughs> that the, these deer are individuals and you, you have, you always have ones on far ends of the spectrum. You, know, you can talk about those averages, but uh, there's always outliers. Exactly. Yeah. It's hard to pin them down to one statement about how deer are behaving. Yeah. Yeah. And you said those now, when you said like 10 miles, you're, you're saying that's total distance traveled during, during your project. Yes. For the, okay. yes. Yeah. Between the scrapes we were monitoring. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're not making a 10 mile circuit every night. That's, no. <laughs> that's across four <laughs> Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, now I guess looking at kind of, individual scrape usage um how many you know different bucks would you tend to see in a, a single scrape that you were monitoring we found 12 different bucks visiting a scrape on average and our maximum here was 39 different bucks oh, for wow. one scrape yeah wow. <laughs> <laughs> and um, i guess well you answered that yeah i was gonna ask the, the most unique bucks you saw in a, in a particular scrape so 39 different bucks using using a scrape Mm -hmm. And we were only able to look at bucks because we didn't have ear tags or collars or any identifying things on the deer. So we were just looking at, you know, mostly antlers, but also facial markings and things like that. But that, of course, does not work for does. So right, our, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tough <laughs> we, to separate them out. Exactly. So I wish we knew how many different does are visiting, but we do not. Yeah. And I guess just overall scrape usage. I mean, how did that break out as far as bucks and does just on average? Our scrapes are mostly being used by bucks. Bucks were performing 73% of all of the interactions that occurred at scrapes, followed by does at 23%. And 
And phones even represented 4% of interactions. So they were coming to these sites and checking things out too. Okay. Gotcha. And I mean, obviously, I, I guess were some scrapes hit much more consistently than others. Definitely. Yeah. Some scrapes, you know, had 39 different <laughs> yeah, 39. bucks visiting. <laughs> and then some scrapes we put the camera on and two weeks later, no one will have visited it. So there's yeah, huge variety in the scrapes as well. Yeah. Well, I know one one common buzzword you hear among hunters, and, and actually I heard you use this early early in the uh, the podcast episode, but when you're talking about scrapes, you often hear uh, hunters refer to community scrapes. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, I guess a supposed to be a, a larger scrape that's used by by more deer than than a I guess a, a typical scrape. I don't know what you call <laughs> a, a non community scrape, but uh, I mean, did did the scrapes that you monitored? I don't know. Did they fall into that category? I mean, definitely, if you saw thirty nine different bucks use one scrape, I would I would consider that a community <laughs> scrape. But I don't know really i mean were all of them basically community scrapes or did you see some just used by maybe a single buck yeah i mean we wanted as many community scrapes as we could get but yeah there were certainly some that were not as popular and may only have one or two bucks visiting them or yeah as i mentioned earlier might only have one buck who just made it and we happened to put a camera on it and he never came back okay yeah well cool we'll go I know going through, well, first of all, I guess, how many, how many different photos did you end up having to go through to, uh, over the course of this study? Jeez, it was tens <laughs> of thousands of photos. Um, uh, yeah, it was crazy. We had, so you I have mean, a lot of help to do that, I hope. Yes, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, when we looked at how many camera trapping days, so how many, Day, full days of data we have between 100 or 100 cameras. We had 7,385 camera trapping days. And you can imagine that it's not, you know, just deer visiting these sites. So we have several to, you know, many pictures per day over yeah. each of those days. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, very, very labor intensive, I'm sure, because you had to, I guess you had to physically lay eyes on every one of those photos and, and sort them out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had to look at every photo, record which specific behaviors the deer were doing. And if it was a buck, then go through our PowerPoint with 218 slides of deer <laughs> to try and match up who he was. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> It was intense. I, I have a hard enough time, you know, keeping up with the, the handful of trail cameras I run, you know, all the photos. So, yeah, that's that's a job for sure. Yeah. Well, I but, know going through all those photos, did, did you capture any kind of cool or, or unusual deer behavior? It was interesting to kind of track individuals over the course of the season, you know. So there would be a book with like a very beautiful perfect rack at the beginning of the season and he might break off a time or two over the course of the season. Or there was an individual with only one eye that we saw coming back and again, again and again on our cameras. So it was cool to see him continuing to survive even with that disadvantage. Yeah. Yeah. They are resilient for sure. Yeah. Some of the things well, I saw that interested me were not specifically deer things either. We had uh, some coyotes at some of our scrape sites. And I have a picture of a coyote peeing in the scrape. <laughs> and I'm still trying to figure out what that's about. 
<laughs> he was trying to exert his dominance, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. I shall <laughs> Show kill them all deer. Of you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, that was kind of another another question I had down here was what what all kinds of animals did you see besides deer that that kind of visited these scrapes? I guess. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, deer obviously, coyotes, as I mentioned, we had. One of our sites had a pack of wild dogs that would run through occasionally. Oh, and boy. <laughs> yeah. They were obviously very interested in the smell. I think we also have a photo of a fox that stopped at a scrape and rolled around in the set a little bit oh. before <laughs> continuing on. Mm-hmm. And so those were the ones that really seemed to be interacting. You know, we'd see some like birds fly through or squirrels run across, but not really evidence of them engaging in the sites. Yeah. No raccoons. I guess that's no. mainly mainly bait sites. I guess they love the, the bait sites for they sure. They do love yeah. the bait sites. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't. I don't remember any raccoons. Okay. But yeah, coyotes, yeah, that, that certainly certainly doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. So I guess any, um, you know, a lot of our listeners, obviously they're, they're hunters and most of them are probably trail cam users. Any Any helpful tips I guess you learned along the way as far as utilizing trail cameras and settings set up that kind of thing Mm -hmm. that's a great question well i mean i think the trick that everyone learns pretty early on with trail cameras is that you want to beat down any vegetation that you have right (laughs) in front of the camera Uh, because that's always the worst when you get three thousand photos of grass blowing oh yeah yep for sure Uh, we ended up it's one of the interesting decisions we had to make was photos over video and we ended up doing photos just because we had such a high volume that, you know, if we'd had videos, I would still be working through this data we collected oh, two yeah. years ago. Yeah. But we do also miss it sometimes because you can really like see all the nuance of behavior when you have video in a way that you might miss with still pictures. Yeah. So. Uh, video would have definitely been cool as far as seeing the, the behavioral usage of the scrapes. But yeah, like you said, you'd still be digging through the data. Yeah. Was Obviously, you know, you you mentioned early on in the podcast that that a big part of this study or, or what spurred this study was was about CWD. And uh, I guess, you know, utilize or pot, the potential of utilizing scrapes for CWD surveillance. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk, I guess, more about that, the application there and, and kind of what you were trying to what you were trying to figure out about these scrapes as, as, as far as CWD goes? Definitely. So that portion was really inspired by a 2018 study by Plummer et al., who identified CWD prions. So for anyone who doesn't know, prions are the causative agent of CWD. It's not, you know, a bacteria or a virus like a lot of diseases we're familiar with. It's a prion disease, which is a misfolded protein. So these researchers found CWD prions in mineral-like sites. It was some of the earliest work using testing outside of the body. So, you know, right now what we're doing mostly is testing harvested deer for CWD, but they were able to test the soil. So what we've done is at scrape sites, we've been collecting a little bit of soil from that bare patch where deer are pawing and urinating and possibly drooling a little bit in We've been collecting some soil from there and also just the tip of the licking branch that, you know, they're also getting their saliva on as well as sticking 
right in their eye and that gland, the preorbital gland there. And not me, I wish I had these skills, but a lab team working with us has been testing the soil and the licking branch to see if we could detect prions there. And turns out we can. Yeah, the lab technology has developed enough that they can pick up prions pretty um, consistently and effectively in the soil as well as on the licking branch. So Hmm. why that is potentially useful to managers is for the same sort of reason that during, you know, peak of COVID-19, public health officials were testing wastewater for COVID. And the thought with that is if you're kind of pooling your samples, if you're essentially sampling everyone from the apartment building or all of the deer visiting the scrape, you're going to be better able to detect the disease uh, when it's a, a lower prevalence or when it's new to the area. Because instead of sampling one harvested deer, your test is sampling all of the individuals that visited that scrape site. Yeah. 30, of, 39 bucks in that one 39 case. 39 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, if you're trying to detect CWD in a new area, you would definitely rather test 39 different bucks than a single one because you're increasing your odds. And by increasing your odds, you're lowering the amount of labor you have to put into it. You're saving money because you're only doing one test instead of 39 separate tests. And so it's just our thought is that it might be more efficient and effective. Yeah. And and you're not angering a lot of hunters by having to go out and shoot 39 bucks to to test them individually. So exactly. Just, just to find out that maybe, you know, it, it isn't. Uh, it isn't there or isn't prevalent, but yeah. Yeah. So very cool. Uh, so obviously you were doing these tests in a, in a CWD area. What, I guess, how many of these scrapes did you find prions in or in, in licking branches? So I will preface my answer with saying we were doing it in a high prevalent CWD area. We were doing it kind of right in the middle of the Tennessee uh, CWD zone where the prevalence Immature deer is about 50%, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. And we found prion contamination in 55% of our scrapes, of our 100 scrapes. Wow. Yeah. But we've been starting to do, we've been starting to do this testing in different areas. Um, And I'm not going to go into all of those specifics right now, but we've been working towards trying out scrape sampling for CWD in areas with lower CWD prevalence, and we're still finding it to be pretty successful. And we're going to expand that out hugely this year. I think we're partnering with eight states to work in their CWD zones and see how the testing would work and if it would be effective at finding it earlier or monitoring the population. And yeah, just see what we can learn and how effective this technique could potentially be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm curious did did you find it was it more prevalent in the scrapes versus the licking branches, or was was it pretty equal? Or? It that has been something that has varied for us so far. So at that Tennessee field site, it was more prevalent on the licking branches, hmm. but that hasn't been true at all of the sites that we've studied. So that's something we're going to have to look into more and see if we can tease apart. Um, because I mean, you can, prions are incredibly complicated 
And we're, I think, still just beginning to understand how they exist in the environment. But we know that they interact interestingly, I'll say, with soil. Um, they will bind to different types of soil in different ways. And it might mean that they stick to the soil better, or it might mean that they become more infectious. And the people, the soil scientists are still trying to understand all of the implications of that and what that might mean for actually testing the soil for the prions, how we need to understand the soil results in different soil regions, you know, when there's more clay or more sand, how that might affect the kind of results that we're getting out of this. So I say all of that <laughs> to answer your question about licking branch versus soil in that, you know, right now it's so complicated, we don't really know for sure which one's going to be better or if it's always going to be better to just test both. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that, man, yeah, that's definitely, <laughs> definitely interesting. And I guess I don't think you can probably answer this, but I mean, do we know was the, was the amount that you're finding in these scrapes enough to be spreading CWD between these deer through the use of scrapes? That you're right. That is a hard question. Uh, <laughs> what I will say is probably Probably since we are able to detect it, it is enough, but it then it again goes back to the complexity of how it interacts with parts of the environment and the fact that some elements of the soil make it more infectious. And it's it's been hard for scientists to put a number on like how many prions you need to infect a deer. So right, I right. can't say for sure. Yes, but probably. OK. Yeah. Scary. Scary stuff. Just it seems like we're finding more and more ways that that this can spread and yeah, <laughs> stay in the soil for for long, long periods of time. But yeah, that's right. Yes. So I mean, building off of that, one of the things I'm excited about for our data this year is we're going to go back to those same 100 scrapes now, two years later, and look at them and see which scrapes are still active and which have gone cold after two years and see if there's any effect of that contamination because as you and your viewership listenership may yeah, know, you listenership, yeah. <laughs> um, it's scientists have found that dogs can smell cwd prions so we're wondering if the deer are able to also smell them and uh would stay away from scrapes that are CWD positive. And we don't know yet. This is something we'll be hoping to learn this year. But it would be really interesting if they have this ability to avoid contaminated areas. Oh, yeah. Yep. Man, yes. <laughs> There's just, I mean, really, we we haven't even scratched the surface, I guess, with what we know about this disease. It's just amazes yeah. me. We just, yeah. So much more to, to learn and hopefully at some point get this thing figured out but yeah ideally so any, anything else i guess that we haven't discussed regarding your your research that you think you know the listeners might be interested in any, anything we missed uh i guess the other data point that i pulled out that i thought might be of interest to hunters is that these deer aren't spending a lot of time at the scrapes so again if you're hoping to catch them there you will have to get a little lucky because 
we looked at the total amount of time that our identified bucks were spending at all 100 scrapes over the four months we had cameras up and the average was 10 minutes. So yeah, it just that, seems that they really just go in there doing their business and moving on. Yep. Yep. So you better, uh, <laughs> you better capitalize on it quickly, I guess, if you're going exactly. to hunt over a scrape. <laughs> well, Miranda, I, I sure appreciate your time today. I uh, enjoyed the conversation and uh, yeah, I think the listeners will, will get a lot out of this as well. It's really interesting to, you know, as hunters, we all, you know, like, like seeing scrapes and finding them and, and some of us hunting over them, but it's interesting to kind of hear the the science behind it and, and how these deer are actually using them. Uh, so yeah, pretty, really interesting stuff. Yeah. I've been enjoying the conversation as well. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I might have to get you back on later as you continue to, to look at this stuff and, and dig more into CWD and, uh, yeah, whether or not that would be super interesting to hear if, if those deer can actually detect it themselves and, and avoid those areas. Yeah. Looking I forward will let to you know. hearing more about that. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Miranda Huang. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So. We would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. And, uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website, covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.